0: Brendan, it's such a pleasure to have you on the CPO Mastery Podcast. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Mo, for having me.
0: Awesome, I'd love to get uh, started with the first question. So what has your journey been into product management? How did you get into product management and what are you up to right now?
1: So uh, I went to school actually for like finance and capital markets and derivatives and whatnot. You uh, went to University of Toronto, so I didn't have any view of getting into tech or anything when I, when I graduated. Uh, so I went into industry there for about three or four years, and it was actually me kind of freaking out and thinking that, oh man, I don't wanna like, work in this structured finance world for the next 40 years. Because uh, you can really see like, how your career goes when you get into the firms and stuff. You can see that it's, it's very structured. And that kind of like, had a very early like, quarter-life crisis saying you know, there has to be more in life, basically. And uh, I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bent, did a lot of side businesses when I was a kid. Um, I used to play poker, I did like investing and stuff when I was a kid. So uh, a friend of mine, also a classmate, we decided to start bootstrapping something on the side. Neither of us were technical, um, but we worked our day jobs and we like paid overseas developers and we were like moonlighting the development of something. Um, the, the startup that we ended up founding was called toonzy It helped YouTube musicians monetize their fan bases. So this is back when like Justin Bieber uh, got famous doing cover music, Mm. uh, you know, through his webcam and stuff like that. So we're kind of capitalizing on that trend. Uh, We had no idea what we were doing as entrepreneurs or technologists really. And uh, we kept bootstrapping, so we kept working and we joined a lot of pitch competitions. You know, something we were good at because of work is like building pitch decks. (laughs) So we were able to like go into these competitions with no product, but like a really big vision about how we were gonna transform Uh, the music industry through like user-generated content and YouTube and stuff like that. And luckily we won our fair share of those competitions and we ended up winning one where the judging panel was a bunch of angel investors. And that weekend we actually closed like, this sounds like a very small amount now, but back then it was a lot, it was like Mm $250,000. And we flash just quit our jobs on Monday Um, and decided again we we were like contracting overseas like development so like we still didn't even have a functioning prototype of anything and we still weren't technical but we just quit our jobs and decided to have a run at being entrepreneurs and so it's a very long story so you know three and a half years go by we pivot a bajillion times uh, we hire we fire we raise a few bridge rounds what ended up happening sort of between the two of us is Um, My co-founder, Derek, who's now the CEO of a a, a customer loyalty platform called Drop. Um, He, yeah, so he ended up working uh, mostly around like sales, marketing and finance, uh, managing the investors, stuff like that. And I ended up working mostly with the developers and the designers. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but like, you know, a lot of what I was doing was product management. And so uh, that's actually where my product management life started. I even learned, you know, how to do some pretty lightweight, but important for my for the long term, like uh, code. Uh, So able to do some front end stuff and just sort of demystified uh, a a lot of what programming was uh, for myself, which I think was very important. It also taught me um, importantly that, like, even though, you know, you've gone through university and you're you're an adult now, you can still learn new things. And so, um, you know, very long story short on that one, we had a soft landing. We sold to this company called SFX Entertainment, which bought the product to repurpose for like Coachella and Tomorrowland because they owned those properties. That company blew up in spectacular fashion a year after we bought, uh, they bought us, but we were happy. You know, as first time entrepreneurs, we had an outcome. Uh, investors got a return it was, you know, we we didn't have anything life changing at all, uh, but it was such an amazing experience. So then from that kind of, you know, being pretty tired after that first startup experience, I wanted to get a job. And so I was thinking about what to do. I didn't really know, like, should I go back to finance now? Or like, what, what am I kind of? And uh, I basically learned that I was a product manager uh, based on what I've been doing and from some of the founders that i'd met i uh, ended up getting an opportunity to be a pm at a company in toronto called freshbooks which was uh, about a series a company at the time it helped uh, smbs do invoicing and accounting and there were about like 60 70 people so that's the first time i was like a professional product manager and i say that you know, it's kind of funny, I still didn't really even know what it meant to do it from a professional standpoint. I was just like, I was just an entrepreneur and getting whatever uh, done that needed to be. But there, I was able to sort of learn the ropes of how to like, be a bit more process oriented, framework minded, uh, just have more rigor in the way that you develop a product, (coughs) excuse me. And um, I was there for about three and a half years, Uh, rose the ranks there, ended up as a product director launched a bunch of important products there and had some great experiences, still friends with many folks there, great company. And uh, that's when kind of through some of the other folks I would met in the startup scene in Toronto, got a tap uh, that Shopify, you know, was a really, really interesting company that you should look at joining. There's a lot of fun stuff happening and it's about to IPO. And so uh, I joined Shopify. It was an interesting scenario, basically, they had not really formed a product management organization. So they had about 500 people at the time and maybe only like three or four people with the word product in their title. It didn't even mean that they were actually product managers, it was just sort of like, someone was like product operations or something like that. (coughs) Excuse me. And so one of the big reasons um, I, I was hired and I learned after, so I ended up interviewing with Craig Miller, who was the CMO at the time and eventually became the CPO. And then I actually ended up, ended up interviewing with Toby too, the CEO, which I thought actually was weird at the time. I was like, that's pretty, I mean, that's literally the most senior person like for hiring an individual contributor PM, because that's what they were interviewing me for. Even though I, I so I kind of actually took a double title demotion to join Shopify because it was such an interesting company. And uh, one of my big mandates, I think, was to figure out how product should work at Shopify. And I kind of only learned that like, like in my second day there uh, because I think it was a little bit too much of like a, a tricky thing to say like, hey, come and be a product manager here when there's no sense of exactly what that means and whatnot, but since I had I had already started like writing a little bit and you know, I, you know some of my thoughts were out there on the black box of product management stuff. And so, um, yeah, so I joined that company and we kind of went through this interesting experience where we would figure out the right method of product management, like the definition of the role within that company. And so uh, at Shopify, it was very much an engineering and design centric organization, like to the extent that the content marketers on the blog, like they could only change or update a blog by like creating a pull request Mm. Um, or they had to deploy it themselves. Like there was no CMS or anything like that. And Toby liked it that way. Um, he's a pretty hardcore developer and engineer at heart, so I think that you know, every good company reflects its founder. And so uh, the thing we ended up figuring out was that Shopify's PMs <coughs> were very much a strategic function and uh, we are there to help teams build the right thing. And the key you know, two parts of that were, you help the team, you're not like some mini-CEO uh, you know, you figure out what needs to be done for the benefit of the customer and the team and like, that's, you have to be a chameleon and figure out how to fulfill those roles. And then you have to, sh- you have to build the right thing. So like, you are accountable for the right feature being built. And so like, those are the two things that I think were really valuable to Shopify at that time and, and really that accountability, that clear decision maker on like, you know, this is the bet we're gonna make and it's on me uh, and, he- and here's why. And, and sort of that like servant leadership uh, attitude around how you're supposed to interact with the teams because you, you know, we, we didn't want to come in and you know, start dictating to engineering teams that had built everything Shopify was at the time, you know, how, how things are done. Like you just don't have the authority to do that. So kind of from that alignment with Toby and the exec team, we started hiring. We started placing PMs on certain engineering teams. Uh, you know, there might've been 50 engineering or project teams at, a, at that time. And we only had like 5 PM. So mm. it was like, not that we did 10 to one, rather we just chose which ones we would have a PM. And our goal sort of in the first 12 months was, will people ask for PMs at the end of the year? Because it was so clear what the difference was. And we wanted it to be success measured that way, as opposed to like, some other contrived, you know, reason that we believe that we're useful. Uh, You know, we'll we'll be deemed useful when people say we're useful, right? And so luckily, within six months, we had teams asking right away. I think like those first six months were very hard. Um, At Shopify, it was like a lot of showing up to teams and they're like, why are you here? Like literally, because they've never worked with someone like that. And you don't design, you don't code. So they're just like literally shrugging about like, I don't know why you're in this meeting, but we're just going to continue having this meeting. Right. And so you had to earn your, you had to earn trust like day in and day out. You had to show your value, do the littlest things and the big things. And I think like where we really started to show a lot of value was, I mean, it wouldn't be obvious at the time, but it ended up being alignment. I think like uh, the way we were able to like pull multiple threads across the company and say like, well, this team's working on this, this is this, and like be able to find where there's conflicts, elevate those discussions to Toby and, and the exec team and then say like, you know, form basically working backwards from what everyone was doing, like a grander product strategy and, and clearer direction. And I think people on those teams, the engineers, the designers alike, started to recognize like when there's a PM on your team, there's just deeper alignment with like, frankly, Toby. And there's more momentum around your ideas and it ultimately impacts the success of the project and then success and the impact it has on customers. And I think that that's what everyone in that company wanted, right? It was quite altruistic, um, you know, in the sense of like, we are there to really empower businesses uh, to sell more online and and be entrepreneurs. And so uh, (coughs) we took all that momentum and first year, we ended the year with like, I think 13 PMs. By the end of the second year, we had like 35. Today, it's like 450 or something like that. And so that, you know, that whole arc was the first three years of my life there. Uh, and then the next three years were really around um, taking a, I'd been promoted to a director at that point, and then the company transformed into divisional structure, and I uh, took over as GM of the developer platform. I, I became the GM of that. So I had more cross-functional reporting, not just PMs reporting into me, but engineers, designers and stuff like that. And um, uh, that was really in charge of growing that developer ecosystem and managing the app store, the API, the business around that, data policy, all these types of things. And then the last two years I had at Shopify were basically um, just ending at, in December in 2022. But I, uh, took lead of our M&A and investments team, which is a completely different job entirely. And yeah. it was really just to um, use Shopify's capital in a way that's like purely strategic to the product. So the mandate was like, use our capital to accelerate the roadmap. And you know, Toby, um, I think he's, he's known for, for bets on people like this, which is just like, he bet that it's much easier to teach someone with deep product knowledge how to be a VC, then the vice vice versa, for them to really have an intuition of Shopify's product, it's people and it's culture. And so myself and also um, a peer of mine, Satish Kanwar, uh, we both kind of walked into those roles. And uh, yeah, we did like 20 investments, nine acquisitions in the last two years. And then uh, uh, I hung up my shopping bag at the end of 2022 because I, I think after my first startup about 15 years ago, you know, I think I'm ready to do another one. And so that's kind of why I, uh, I left is to, to start another company, um, which is, even Toby says on his first day, like in onboarding, the best way to leave Shopify is to go start a company. And so, um, you know, it was, uh, I, I kind of took that uh, to heart and uh, yeah, now I'm just exploring a bunch of ideas and with that intent.
0: Oh, I know Derek um, in social media, I don't know him personally, but it's interesting that both you and Derek have gone on to, to have successful careers. I go back to your three years working on your first startup. Uh, what was unique about what you did or what was the things that you
1: learned? What's the magic sauce there? Wow. I mean, that was a crazy time. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't, we didn't have any technical knowledge. We didn't know how to build a product. We didn't have any customers we just had like, so I think the first lesson is like, don't build a business like that. Like don't start a business just based on your own, your own kind of internal narrative yeah. of this amazing pitch and business you can build. Really? Like crazily, and this happens still today, like we were able to raise money on that. We could pay to big vision, we could say like the market's this size, we can show these design wireframes of how this product is gonna look, we can, you know, have, an initial customer list. And, and, and I don't mean this as it's fraudulent, but rather like we were, we're networking with these musicians and they're like, yeah, I'll do that, that sounds cool. And we're like, okay, we got three musicians on, right? And it's like, you get these false senses of validation. And then uh, you never really hit market. You never hit market until you've burned through so much capital and you realize that like you didn't have a hypothesis built on like any, anything in the real world. And so, you know, it's cliche now because there's so much startup knowledge. It's like you got to get out to market fast because you need like your idea has to hit market reality as soon as possible in order for you to build confidence that it's something worth pursuing. Right. So, you know, what I would do completely differently, you know, if I did that startup again, right, would be to uh, get out in market. A very very simple prototype, and start charging people and selling to people right away, so that I could learn all the painful lessons we had at the beginning, instead of going into uh, you know 12 months of building something, launching it, and then seven people use it. And we went through that three times, like three versions of that exact same thing. Like we would launch, fail. Okay, it didn't work. Here's three pieces of feed, like literally three customers told us this feedback and okay, now let's pivot the whole company this way, build it for another six to nine months, launch, same thing, right? We actually ended up getting to something that was like kind of interesting, but it was too little too late in a way. Mm. Like I mentioned, it was a soft landing as a company and that was because we eventually, after like the second or third bridge round, we tried to raise, we couldn't raise anymore, the market wasn't big enough. Um, If we, you know, by the time we sold, if we had had that that version of the product in the first year, I think we could have built something really big, uh, but it took us too long to get there because we we didn't uh, we weren't aggressive enough into getting into market and basically um, um, learning from real customers in the real world as opposed to staying in our own you know hypothetical land of things that will work and narratives that sound good. Um, so I think like that's a it's a cliche lesson I think yeah. for startups. But as first-time founders before, you know, I think any of that knowledge was as obvious or ubiquitous, we learned that the hard way, Yeah, basically. So that's what I take from it again and again and again is just like, whatever your idea is, get to the root of what would make that idea work or not. What's the key assumption there or the key idea you have there? And then what is the fa- absolute fastest way to validate that? And often you'll find, picking up the phone and trying to cold call and sell someone is the fastest way. Don't build anything, right? Just like pretend that you have it, <laughs> try to sell it, yeah. and then see if someone's like, okay, I'll buy that, that sounds great, or whatever, or some version of that. And you just didn't have to build anything and you got that, that nugget of that data point, right? So, Is there any times
0: that that does not
1: work? Um, yes, I think in cases where it's such a new novel thing, to the world where like there's no reference point. So you're trying to explain to this customer like, it's gonna do this and this and this, and they're like, they just can't understand it, right? Like explaining an iPhone before it, it existed or something yeah. like that is a, is, a, is a easy metaphor for that or analogy. And so there are cases where I think that that you have to, I still don't think you actually have to build the whole thing, mm-hmm. but you have to find the middle ground or the, the shortest path to making it feel real, right? Like you can imagine before they could create the iPhone, like all the complexity that went into it, they could have validated the use for it by making like a fake uh, kind of piece of hardware that didn't actually have any compute underneath.
0: Yeah,
1: It just showed a screen and you could touch something, right? Like, that's still very hard to be clear, but yeah. that's far cry. If they really had to validate it, they could do something like that.
0: Where does, <clears throat> where does brand fit into your uh thinking on products that are more expensive and validating that and what i mean specifically is when you're selling something that's more expensive that's zero to one like maybe like how important do you think brand is in getting the sale as opposed to just
1: the Mm. functionality like if you're selling more like the luxury market for example or
0: a product that is any product that is expensive where uh brand would be important
1: could be a tech product b2b and is it from a scenario where you have no brand yet? You have no brand exactly. Got it. So like, I guess the question is like, when you have no brand, but you know you're gonna sell in an upper market where brand is gonna be important. Yeah. How much are you willing to tarnish that brand?
0: Exactly. Or or how do you uh, launch there? How do you? Is there any way to go lean on that? Or do some products just require you to build up brand?
1: Well, I think the brand, I think it's hard to just build a pure brand. I think the brand is always an outcome of everything else that you do, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, it's high quality product or service or whatever it may be, then you develop a brand around that reputation. Right. So, you know, if you're going very high end where the the bar, the expectation from potential customers is gonna be very high. Yeah. I think you do have to take some more care. Yeah. Right, but at the same time, (coughs) you've seen companies try these these things where okay high-end a different way to look at it is high-end a lot of high-end is about is status and exclusivity so we've certainly seen products out there that play on that psychology before it's even built so think of something like superhuman email like back in the day before people were using it like, like how hard was it to get an invite to this thing? Right. Sign up for this waiting list, share it to 10 people, you go up the waiting list or whatever. Was it Dropbox was the first one to do that? Marketing technique, anyway, whatever. You see what I'm getting at though? Yeah. It's like you can position yourself and the product in this sphere um, by just like directly marketing to that psychology yes. of, of, of status. And so, you know, and, and, and by directly marketing to that psychology, you're going to be able to validate things about the product itself. Cause you can't just market like sign up here to be high status. It like, no, use this thing. And only, you know, certain high status people are going to be able to use it. Yeah. Then you can start to validate it. So you can yeah. still
0: go lean there. I yeah. love that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and the next section is really around zero to one products that Shopify's launch launched and been so successful at, uh, you know, they've had incredible success with the developer platform, Shopify plus, uh, is there anything that has, been the ingredients to consistently launching these successful products
1: at shopify yeah well a i think the things we remember especially from the outside uh, that are successful is a very small proportion of all things that are ever built Mm -hmm. so that's like the immediate answer there were so many things that never made it to launch, never made it past Bill, like even like the prototyping stage, that launched and we don't even remember their names and they just died. Um, those far outweigh the things that we remember. Got it. So this, it's like survivorship bias. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Awesome. And, and that was my next question on, um, I think Shopify has a unique approach on thinking about sunk costs.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Why do you think that it has a unique approach?
0: (laughs) Um, I think most companies attach too much emphasis on continuing a project that hasn't been continued. Hmm. And uh, Shopify doesn't always do that, which is a good thing. So they don't care much about sunk costs. I want your opinion on that. I think that's true. some examples. I think
1: that's true. I think it all comes down to, to Toby. Toby is an incredibly high conviction individual. He tries to build a culture that can look at itself and say like, we are working on the most important thing right now and not have to deal with the social, or, or sorry, not deal with, but is strong enough to like have the conversations to fight through the social consequences of that, the political consequences of that. So a lot of it comes from his own conviction of, of sort of the, the, the issues that companies get, and especially when they get larger, that prevent them from having that level of conviction. You know, this is May 14, 13th that we're talking now. So fresh off the press two weeks ago or a week ago, Shopify divested its logistics business. Right? And there was a series of layoffs related. You know, lots of, of great people got let go of Shopify. You know, let's focus on the logistics part. Yeah. Four or five years ago, uh, we had our Unite conference and we got up on stage and said, this is the future of Shopify. We're getting into logistics. We're going to put billions of dollars into it. And we did. Culminating and we bought Deliver for $2 billion last year. That sunk cost. A thousand, thousands of people in this business. Now, I'm not in the company anymore, so I can't understand exactly you know, all the reasons that went into the decision. Um, but it's certainly an example of, no, of like not getting stuck by some cost, right? What you read from the public statements from Toby's own internal email that he, they, they shared publicly is sort of, this is not core to our mission anymore. You know, it's not the most, it is an important thing, but it's not the most important thing. Um, this will allow us to focus. There's a lot happening in our core business, especially around innovation in AI and whatnot that is requiring our even deeper commitment and focus. Uh, and therefore, you know, yes, I know we got up on stage and said this and you know, the investor community thinks you know, built all their models with the assumption that we're going to do this and this and this and the logistics and it's going to create this revenue and all these other factors, right? And all the people that we love working with and that we build relationships, but uh, this is the most important thing. And so therefore we're doing that, right? And so he leads by example that that kind of uh, propagates to the organization as a cultural thing. And, and, and that's the only way I think it can start. In any company, like culture, it's like, it's the CEO down yeah right.
0: I see I see this happening across a lot of firms Google shutting off area 120 uh, Shopify going back to the core what happened to I wonder what happens to the take 10% crazy bets what's happening to that aspect
1: I think it's on pause I think it's on pause I think like is this the first time that's happening mm, that it's on pause at th- in this at this big level, I think. In my career, yes. Uh, actually, maybe not. I think there was a dark period after like the uh, great financial uh, recession. Yeah. Um, it's an austerity thing, you know. There's like when the economy is perceived to be heading to contraction. Yeah. Um, interest rates are high. You know the multiples are down on tech. Like, it's harder to raise capital now. Like, back in the heyday, kid you not, Shopify could raise, could decide right now, we should raise a billion dollars. And the money would be in our bank account in 24 hours. Mm. Because there was so much capital out there, so much investor appetite. Just call the bankers and they'll get that deal done. Yeah. Right, like we had so many cases where we would announce, make an announcement to the market. We're raising equity capital. And usually, when 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 they do that, you know, they're announcing that first thing, and then subsequently, <coughs> they announce the closing of that at a price or whatever. They found an investor. We would announce it at the same time. We'd be like, we've decided to raise equity capital, and it's all sold. Right, kind of thing. And and so like that whole world is gone. Yeah. Right. And that wasn't long ago. And that world created, you know, the beginning of 10% or 20, it used to be 20% time, I believe, and then became 10%. Like that world of excess and like you didn't, you didn't need to actually, because capital was free, you didn't need to be as efficient. It actually, logically, when capital is free, you should make as many bets as possible because it's almost no cost to making more bets, right? When capital isn't free, now you have to actually run the ROI on every bet, and then and then your actual you have constraints on your resources, yeah. and so that's why these things are paused, getting cut off, and stuff like that. It's actually I think it's a natural function of capitalism, um, and I think you know when the tide turns the other way again, it'll start the other direction, and it'll probably get to you know start in moderation and then become excess again, mm. and this is probably going to be true this way too. It's like it's gonna contract and it's gonna be moderate shutdowns and then it's gonna be s- stupid shutdowns. Like there'll be companies that are cutting off parts of their businesses that they shouldn't because they're so afraid of you know, overspending or whatever that they lose their will uh, or vision of how to build a longer term business. They start sacrificing the long term for the short term mm-hmm. in a contractionary environment. So it's gonna happen, I think, both ways. Like That's how all boom and bust cycles tend to go.
0: Yeah. Awesome. You talk about Toby having conviction, I've heard you say it too. Where does high conviction come from?
1: Where is high, well, I mean, I think it comes from a deep belief that you know the right direction of things, like what's gonna happen, and the way that your company, yourself, you need to act. So like, you have to have that deep belief. How you build that, everyone's different. Some people, you know they can build that just in their head mm. right it's like i know how everything is going to play out we're going all in here that's it there's other people that they spend time learning about something until they really feel like they understand it you know they they have a healthy um bit of self self skepticism and they know they don't know everything so they talk to people that know those things they learn themselves and then they make them but ultimately it comes down to that same thing it's like My belief, I've passed that line where like I have, I would bet the farm (laughs) that this thing is gonna happen. Now, when you know that that's true, you have to marry that with, is there something I care about enough um, that where this thing I know is gonna happen is gonna affect it if I don't do something,
0: Mm.
1: right? Like the world's going this way with AI. I love Shopify so much as a company. I'm just pretending to be Toby here that i know that we have to go that way or else we might not exist in 10 years right and then you marry that with okay we have a constrained environment okay we have to let go of legit again i'm not in the company i made all this up um so that's where i think it comes from is you have to care about enough something and you have to have a view of the future that requires you to create some action um so toby i will say from you know from my vantage point And this is definitely something I think that propagated throughout the culture in Shopify, like he definitely is not someone that just shoots from the hip on his his judgment. Like I promise you, if he believes AI is big, he he has been using everything that exists in the AI world. And this is one of his superpowers of just like being able to be a fast learner, but also being very technical. He doesn't take anything at surface level, right? Like he will go in there and actually see Oh, the tides are changing in this technology. Oh, you can actually do these things, right? And he will inform his strategic direction on like hardcore engineering truths, basically, um, and marry that with like you know his own mission to imp- uh, grow entrepreneurship through Shopify, and and that's where a lot of those high conviction bets come. But yeah.
0: Awesome. How important are high conviction decisions
1: for product managers? Uh, I'd say they're probably the essential part of the job. I think if it's not a high, con- if it's not a high conviction decision, then you didn't even need to be there. Right? Cause you'll need a high conviction decision when it's not obvious which way to go. Right? If you could figure out which way to go sort of methodically, through data or whatever, you probably don't even need a PM there, right? It should be fairly obvious like, okay, keep optimizing this thing or whatever. (coughs) The high conviction parts where it's like, it's very ambiguous. There's a big unknown about the future for all these various reasons, or there's just so many factors, it's like such a complex system. And so the two choices are analysis, paralysis, and inaction (laughs) or action. Those are the meta choices. And your job as a PM is to make sure that there's action, because uh, definitely the the latter, the inaction and the analysis paralysis is not going to create any good outcomes. And so I think, especially you know, you and I have been talking about AI a lot today, especially with like a lot of the documentation, communication, alignment type of work, potentially getting like. You know, 10x in efficiency, 100x in efficiency with AI. I think this is what the job is going to come down to. It's going to be conviction. It's like, like that's what the product job comes down to. Because ultimately, like they always say, one of the big weaknesses in AI is that it can't create its own objective function. Like it doesn't have a will about what it needs to be. Now you could tell it, you know, make the choice that makes Shopify. Uh, uh, grow the fastest or whatever. But if it's obvious enough to do that, again, like, that's not a high conviction call. It's when there's like a, it could go, it's 50-50 this way or this way. Yeah. You know, or 33, 33, 33. If there's three options. That, I think that's when uh, the PM has to come in or anyone, a human really, <laughs> has to come in and, and make that decision about how to act. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. From your past experience, um, what percentage of decisions are high conviction decisions and does it change by level?
1: From associate product manager to VP? Oh, yeah, it changes drastically. I'd say, like, w- when you're a more entry level PM, and this is, I don't know, maybe a Disruptive statement, but I think like a lot of the decisions you make actually could be done by an AI I I do I I believe at the very entry level um, Because a lot of it is like decisions about you know uh, Roadmap or backlog sequencing Right you do. Okay, so if you do if you have a project and you have all these tasks and it's backlog sequencing, and you're working through the engineers, like you're basically just running an ROI function, right? It's like, what sequence do we do these things that most efficiently finish the thing, or do it with the least amount of risk? That is actually procedural, yeah. right? Now, your job as PM is there are actually like, asking the right questions to be able to get, to make quantitative what is otherwise qualitative. If it's like an engineer, if it's like, a, if it's like a difficult engineering problem, let's say, you sometimes are, in the room helping engineers facilitate a discussion around it and be like, does this feel like a medium t-shirt or a large t-shirt? Like all those types of things, right? Yeah. You're just facilitating, yeah. trying to make this like, gray area into something quantitative, but then ultimately, once you get all those, you know, those 10 tasks and you figure out the R, the return and the investment and the effort on each of them, you're just sorting. You're just sorting by whatever's the highest ROI and then you're doing them one to 10. Yeah. Right, So I think like, and that is a lot of what entry-level PM is. Um, And I think a lot of that is, I don't know if it's gonna go away, but I think a lot of that will go a lot faster, a lot faster, and it'll be a lot less of the time that a PM spends. Much more important will be figuring out what people want, right? I don't think, I think an AI can optimize on something that people already have that we know they want, yeah. But to figure out the next thing that they want, you know, it's probably still a ways away. So I think PMs still have a big role to play there. But back to your original question, as you go up in seniority, basically your whole day should be filled with tiebreaker questions. Like I remember when I was when I was VP of product and the GM, like basically the whole day, every single meeting is the teams booking a meeting with you because after. Th- six seven weeks of debate experimentation they cannot agree to go this way or this way and you're there to break the tie like that's the entire job actually
0: yeah that feels exhausting like as a vp when Mm -hmm. every you're 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 making the most difficult decisions that teams have been struggling for for six weeks and you're making that's your job nine to five how do you, do you have, I feel like, wouldn't you lack confidence or how do you know? seems like a
1: lot to face. Yeah. I think you, you know, you recognize that that is your job. You know, that's the job you're paid to do. I think if you make it to such a level like you're getting compensated well, like you should be in the hot seat. You should be in the hot seat. So that's a responsibility you should be pretty well aware of. Is it draining? Um... Yes, but I think like you toughen up over time, like you just get used to that. I also think that you have a different vantage point because you get to see the set mm-hmm. of all tiebreaker problems and you get, to, you get to see like this is not really that big of a deal when we're also thinking about this other thing. Like if this thing goes wrong, these 10 other projects don't even matter. And so that's why it doesn't agonize as much because you may you know get, 10 decisions of that, it might be their most important thing, but since you get to see them all, you realize these are all fairly small. These are all fairly small, so I can make a quick decision and the risk of failure of that decision, if, if the one that I made was wrong, you know, we can absorb that as a company and as a group. And then the one or two that you realize like, oh, like these ones could have a big impact, uh, those are the ones that you yourself end up escalating. Like, I'm bringing that to the CEO because I believe that it's that important that I need more feedback on this, right? So it's kind of like half the job is sorting, too, uh, between those two two types, yeah.
0: So you've got two senior product managers, right? Um, Is there a correlation between the one senior product manager that makes more high-conviction decisions as opposed to the other? Is it a prerequisite to accelerate in your career to make more high-conviction decisions? Yes. But be right about them?
1: But be right about them. So it's high risk, high reward, right? People can come in guns blazing and say this, this, this. If they're wrong too many times in a row, they lose trust and respect in the organization and their feet are cut off from under them. It's very hard to recover from that, frankly. Um, So you you do have to be right more than wrong. I think that that is just generally true. That's just true of any leadership role anywhere. Right Like take any random tribe of human beings, yeah and put the leaders in there, and the one that keeps being right is just going to get more trust, yeah. and there's no difference in this world yeah. Yeah.
0: I find many senior product managers um, are so good at execution, mm-hmm. uh, but they get stuck at the more strategic level, and they want to be able to take more strategic decisions, or they want to think more, they want to make more of those high conviction decisions, but it, I think it seems like <coughs> the glass door, what advice do you have for folks like that? That that as you just said, you have to
1: make more high conviction decisions and be right about them. How do you do that? Well you have to be invited to the decision making table. Okay. So you know, that's the first that's the prerequisite for all of it. Yeah. Is why am I not at that table? Yeah. Because almost by definition, if they're not making the strategic decisions, they're not at that table. Yeah. And it's because they don't have you know, they don't, the decision makers that are currently making that decision don't feel that their input is required to make the right decision there, Yeah. right? And so are they right about that? And you know, if so, then you have to think about, you have to think about like, I wouldn't say like how to get into that table. I think that's like a weird political way to think about it, but rather what could you be doing internally, externally with customers, et cetera, uh, to give yourself the right context so that you do have an opinion that is important for that table. Right? Like if you're, if no one's paying attention frontline to the customer,
0: Yeah.
1: and you know that the decisions being, are being made without that view, you know, you can position yourself with that context to be useful. Like be, like figure out what, what context at that table Is Missing and how for you to get it to be the one that gets invited to it to help that, right? Um, I always think like that's the right way to apply to think about these things because if you try to try to force it in through politics Saying like hey, I want to be part of that meeting, you know, I think it should be my job to make that decision or whatever You're just playing a relationship game I don't think you're building you're not thinking about you know the 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 function of the role or how deci- good decisions get made in, in like the right way which yeah. is like what information is required to make this decision the right way now i will admit especially in large companies there are a lot of politics at play so you yeah. might be the right person but they might be cutting you out of that others might be cutting you out of that table for whatever reason you have to recognize that that's the case and you know, that's a different set of like. That's a different bit of advice I'd give, which is like, if you recognize you're in a trap like that, you got to find another table to join. Like, go to a different team, go to a different company. Like, for whatever reason, if you're, you know, f- you know, politically outcasted from that group, and that's yeah. like creating a ceiling for you, then accept that that's what it is. And, and stop banging your head against the wall, because it's not about how good you are at your job or how strategic you are, it's that there's this other human social game happening that's preventing you from even having a voice. Um, now, okay, so that's like the very first thing, I don't even know if that answers your question. Mm-hmm. Say you are at that table and you don't have a strong strategic voice yet, right? You're mostly just like part of the consensus. Yeah. A, are you, do you actually agree with everything that's being said? That's the first thing you challenge yourself on, right? If you actually think like what's being tabled and then agreed on and then executed is actually exactly what you would do, nothing to change. Because why do you want strategic, basically you do have strategic power because everything you think should happen is happening. Yeah. So really it should only grind your gears when you have a different view of what mm. should be happening but it's not happening and you don't have a voice or it's not being heard. I think a lot of that comes down to people, you know, being risk adverse. Yeah. You gotta put yourself out there. You gotta put, even if there's, you know, nine people in the room and you have to be the 10th that says, I think that's actually wrong. Uh, it takes a lot of conviction and a little bit of career risk sometimes, uh, but then high risk, high reward too. Yeah. Right. So many people, you know, there's a lot of really senior people at Shopify who have earned long-term respect because they have proven that they are independent thinkers. Um, You know, if they don't agree, despite all the social dynamics in a room, they will say they don't agree. And I think that's a, that, you know, as a leader, I'm looking for people like that too. Because you definitely, like you, every leader's also been in rooms where people will just agree with whatever they say. Yeah. And that's not helpful, right? Not for like the pursuit of the truth or the right answer or whatever it may be. So it's either going to be those two things, like you're not at the table for some reason, Just tackle that. And then if you are at the table, either you agree with what's going on and everything's good, or you're afraid to say it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah.
0: This, this last uh, question on decision making is on intuition. Okay. If you look at your own decisions, um, those big bets that were successful, I wonder if you can quantify if, more of them came from intuition, or more of them came from having data. Ooh. And, and, and maybe you can, maybe I can quantify, maybe I can help qualify this. Um, if you made a gut decision somewhat quickly, potentially it's more intuition-based versus doing a, a long data analysis.
1: I would actually, s- characterize it differently. I would say every decision I ever have made is intuition. And there's varying levels of, you know, data informed or otherwise informed I have been for each of those things. And so you never get to a place where the data is so clear that this is the obvious decision or else it would already be made. Yeah. And so Every decision is made on intuition, and it's about right-sizing the the kind of risk you're willing to take on that intuition with the risk of a bad decision, Yeah. right? The most important element of any decision is like, or a bunch of decisions knowing which one's the most important and why. What's the risk of the wrong decision here? Yeah. And so what I'd like to think is that I was able to recognize <coughs> over the course of my career, which decisions were actually high risk. And for those, you know, I would try to leave no, like nothing unturned. You know, what's every bit of information we can get to de-risk this situation. Um, you know, I tried to go as far into that as possible but, and delay it as long as possible until we could make the right decision, unless there was some other external time factor. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say I use more than one or the other. I want to say I, I, I strive to, to use the appropriate amount of diligence, basically, for uh, relative to risk. If that makes any sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, it's helpful. Thank you for that. Um, next question is on product-led growth. Okay. What's your perspective on product-led growth? Uh,
1: can you share insights on when teams should think about implementing it? Could you, just so I'm clear, what do you mean by product-led growth? What I mean
0: by product-led growth is the primary strategy where uh, the way that the product is sold is through uh, the product showing benefits as opposed to a sales team selling it or marketing selling it.
1: Oh, I see. Um, I think it depends on what type of Product and market it's in. Like, if you're an enterprise, you do need the marketing and sales teams because it's very complex sales cycles, et yeah. cetera. You know, okay, so let's call that the answer, obviously, for that one. Yeah. But from, let's say, a more self serve, productized type of product, yeah. Um, I think you have to lean on it as much as possible. Like, it's the thing that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a salesperson that never sleeps you know, that experience. And it's the thing that scales. Yeah. And, uh, and it's most cost efficient as a business to be able to do it. There's, I think you should always push yourself to say, like, why would I ever need a call? Like, why do I have to interject as a human being, whether it's salesperson or account management or whatever it may be? Uh, every time I have to intervene is like, it suggests is a failure in the experience of the product at least should be your intuition, nice. until proven otherwise. Like, why did I have to give them this context that, oh, don't worry, this, this is just like, you know, helping you through this, this, this part of onboarding so that you can get your payments set up or something like, why didn't we just say that in the product? Yeah. You know, wh- why did we have to design it in a way where that's not clear? And I think that that's a much healthier mindset
0: yeah.
1: uh, and aspiration than you know, just relying on more people. Yeah. yeah,
0: awesome. I love those analogies that you said, the salesperson that never sleeps. Totally. Uh, yeah. Right, <laughs> and it's the most cost effective way of doing it. All right, awesome. Uh, next set, set of questions on a very hot topic, which I, is the top of mind for many, many PNs. You know, given the emergence of AI and generative AI, um, how should product managers think about this in terms of their roadmap? Ooh,
1: in product, terms of their roadmap.
0: Yes, in terms of their product roadmap. We'll get to career a little bit later. I
1: think it matters so much what they're working on, what space they're working on. Okay. You know, I think these these especially these LLMs, these large language models. They're able to do they're able to do sort of like a lot of like, A, very broad, so that's very interesting. Like, they could do a lot of work that's very broad, but it's it's a lot of work that is sort of, if you get to the root of it, quite procedural and manual, in a way. Like, uh, I know we're talking about the products that they're building, but let's even just use their own jobs as an example. Yeah. It's like, as a PM, like, writing a, a, a requirements doc or something like that, like you could bullet out you know, the requirements a lot faster than you can write a product spec, right? But you write the product spec because it's a better read, uh, you know, there may be people who are less uh, in tune with like, how a PM thinks or whatnot that need a, a larger, like, a more descriptive version of that thing right so you you'd spend a lot of time as a pm like writing out something so it's more appropriately understood and i think of the llms as a lot of this sort of like translation layer between things it can take something a real raw thought and make it into a format that's digestible by a larger group for example right and today that's what pms do as a job both ways also ingesting these really large documents and like figuring out the five bullet points that matter from from that thing and so you know, if your product has, if the users of your product do work like that, whether in your product or in the industry that they're in around your product, that's opportunity for AI. So like, I don't know, if you're working, very straightforward example, if you're working on the product that helps get signatures for documents for lawyers, yeah. like how much work do lawyers do that is like crazy, repetitive, and looking up like precedent, for example, um, you know, uh, and and like creating lots of like footnotes and and relating things to like uh, other documents and cases and all these types of things. Like AI can do a lot. You can envision AI doing a lot of it. Now, the, I think the tricky part of where AI is is that like it's it's you take any piece of writing where you're a real expert in and you're like, this is pretty good, but like, I wouldn't trust this, right? There's like, it's like 98% there or something, but like, there's a little bit of, um, a little bit of like probabilistic uncertainty. Like, you know, these AI hallucinations like yeah. we will say, like, like, you're just not sure if it's always gonna be right. And there are some industries where like, you have to be right, right, Yeah. or you get sued. Yeah. Right, and so I think that's where uh, you know the technology is. So, it's I think it's a great time to start prototyping and figuring out where you know AI could add the most leverage for to solve your customers' problems. Uh, and then only through prototyping uh, and and also a little bit of patience, I think will you find out if that actually will work. Because the other thing that's really interesting in AI right now, I think, is that you know, the rate of change is so fast that you almost have to build with an assumption of how much better everything's gonna get. You know, like, is every six months and every, like, dot version of GPT gonna be, eventually become, like, alien-level intelligence or something like that? Like, so, th- like, that's the part that I think is real, really interesting. But today, 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 pragmatic use, I think it comes down to, like, the, the types of work that, that people do where perfection isn't required uh, or 100% accuracy isn't required or good enough is good enough. And so that's why a lot of this is like exploding in like marketing copy use cases. Like you write some ad and send it out. Okay, it wasn't perfect, but did it still get, you know, 70 clicks instead of if you wrote it perfectly yourself, 72 clicks. But it, but the AI one you did instantaneously and did a thousand reps of them in five seconds, like do that, mm. right? So it's interesting. Like you have to find the right sweet spot between like where the quality of the bar is acceptable, knowing that there's a high there's going to be an error rate, and if there's a if there's a failure, it's no big deal, right? So kind of like low severity, low severity type of pieces of work basically. Um, and the other, so that's, that's one side. I actually think like the, the internal use is a lot more interesting right now. Like the decision making use, the knowledge workers inside of the organization, how they can do it because you, they're already working with imperfect information, right? Like you get a, someone writes a whole, you know, let's say thesis or doc about this is what we should do as a company and strategy. Like it's already imperfect, it's just an idea, right? But the way that AI can actually help someone flush out that idea, you know, make it shareable and ready, and then vice versa help someone receive that idea, and then uh, distill it into something really small in a summary, so that there's higher, higher uh, efficiency of communication. Basically, like that—that's amazing because if someone shares you a product strategy idea, like you—you you both don't know if it's right. It's just a conversation. You're just sharing an idea and then you actually have a conversation around it and then you make a conviction call, right? And so I think like internally that speeds up those processes of getting to the point where we know like we've been able to like basically have like a neural link together to share that idea and debate it as fast as possible so that we can say like, okay now with our combined context we should do this, right? It's taking that process, which may take weeks now, and making it into a day in my mind. That's what I think that's what it's capable of, like almost already. Yeah. Like we we talked with the class that we had earlier today about that idea of like, imagine there's some project. There's you know a finance team that's talking about Project X, there's the marketing team that's talking about the launch of Project X, there's the engineering team talking about, you know, the the uh, some engineering hurdles around Project X, the product and design team thinking about some experiences about Project X, they all have their independent meetings. And if the AI was transcribing those meetings and summarizing them, and it has knowledge of all four meetings, it can, it can already know where there's misalignment between those teams, right? It's like, oh, the marketing team thought it was launching this day, but engineering's planning for it to launch on that day, right? And so without people even meeting, you know, this company's underlying AI infrastructure can prompt back to the stakeholders that there is misalignment without there even needing to be in meeting. Uh, that's crazy, right? How much time does that save from organizational waste, especially in large companies? It's gotta be like, like it's an absurd number to say, but I honestly think it's like 70, 80% of time and effort in big companies is misalignment and realignment like it has to be, it has to be. Especially when you're like launching a small set of features or set of products, like you take Apple's cases, how many product lines do they have, I don't know, six to eight or something like that, plus a lot of software stuff. Tens of, th- hundreds of thousands, maybe even people, I don't even know the exact count. Like how many meetings does it take to get all those people perfectly aligned? It's crazy, right? But that's the bulk of work. And it's that destructive, crazy, creative process that happens around that, that leads to these amazing products. But if you take away all that overhead of just like law of large numbers around like number of meetings and miscommunication and all those types of things, because there's this ever-present AI that's just able to take like the gist of what you're talking about and be able to just like notify people when two people are talking about the same thing but completely different, in completely different directions, um, that's I think incredibly powerful. Huge. It's incredibly powerful, especially for like senior leadership and whatnot. Um, sorry, we went all over the place. Yeah. This, this we can go forever on, on these. I think it's like, you know, the other side that fascinates me is like we've been talking a lot of like current PMs and companies and larger companies. I think new company formation with. Over the next few years, with this level of AI capability, is going to be super interesting. Like, how many people do you need to hire anymore? Can a PM do a job of five PMs? Five years from now, like, can a PM do a job of five PMs? I think it's conceivable. I think it's conceivable, if like backlog grooming, spec writing, you know, wireframes, all these types of things are now like much closer to whatever is in the PM's brain, it just immediately just becomes a document or immediately becomes some sort of communication content form. That is like 80% of the actual work, right? How many times you had a PM, like you have this idea, you need to make this pitch or whatever, and you have to write like this 10 page deck, or you're working with the designer to like, bring this idea to a little bit more fidelity. So you are working on a wireframe, it takes a whole week to then take the wireframe and then bring it and present it to like this product director and their design director to see what they think of this idea, because that's the best way to communicate the idea. If you could just prompt that thing, like make a wireframe that does this this and, this, and this and this and it happens in five seconds, like that's crazy for effectiveness. And so I think the scary part is that, will that lead to a lot more downsizing in larger companies? Maybe, maybe over the long term, or maybe they just hold flat for a very long time until like, they've basically grown into that efficiency productivity curve and then newer companies, can they start to outcompete because they're way more capital efficient now, right? It's like, even engineering too, like how many amazing engineering stories have we seen of like developers who are, you know, they say like two to three times more efficient now with the current tooling, not having to write low level boilerplate code and you know, being able to, uh, or data scientists using code, the code interpreter to like create, or yeah. well, actually it's not even them, like you could use it as a non-data scientist. Right, it's just like—it's crazy to think like what a semi-technical solo founder might be able to do by themselves, just with AI helping them. Uh, and I think that 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 just is going to go to a place that it's hard to even fathom, but super interesting though. Yeah, I see. it's also kind of humbling as a human because it's also like—it's like, man, what did we really do? You know. If the AIs figure out how to do so much of what we used to do, it's like, what did we even do? <laughs> it's really, it's a really strange thought, right? Yeah. It's like, is so much of what we did just so procedural, and predictable? And I mean, at a certain at a certain scale, I guess yes. Take a hundred thousand PMs, like how many different versions of PM is there? Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Is that sombering? I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird to think of it's, it's it. Like, it's both energizing and sombering yeah. at the same time. Yeah.
0: You mentioned something earlier. I wonder if you can talk about that again um, in our class. Um, how should product managers who don't want to be disrupted think about AI in I their companies? Okay. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I said this in the class. I think like you should be that PM that leans into it, you know, like definitely don't don't be, you know, the the luddite around AI. Um, figure out how it can supercharge you and your teams, and be position yourself as the person that that is helping the company not use AI. I actually think that's the wrong lens, right? It's more like, oh, like you know, we use that alignment example. It's like how our company is way more aligned than it ever used to be because we've like used this tooling. And now we have this system that's telling us when we're misaligned passively, yeah. right? Like you're, you're essentially solving the same problems you always used to do as a PM, but now you have, a different, you have a different set of tools to be able to do that. And I think it should be quite liberating too, because I don't know many PMs that would say like, chasing down all these different cross-functional teams to find out if they're actually aligned with you and realizing they never are,
0: yeah.
1: and then having to course correct all of that, like, is fun. Most PMs never sign up for that job, you know, because they're good at that. Yeah. It's much more around like, they love customers, they love building and designing products, uh, they love working with engineering teams, and, and I think you get to do more of that, right? So I think lean into what's capable and think of it as a way for you to do less of the things that are just busy work or you know, herding cats and people chasing and stuff like that. Let it do all the, and you know why it feels like busy work? It's because it's not, it's not a creative act, right? Like booking meetings with five cross-functional teams and then figuring out if they're aligned with you or not is not a creative act. It's herding cats and it's boring. And so you know, think of AI as a thing that could liberate you from that.
0: Just can't imagine like a PM role where you're like, you know, 70% of activities you do are done by AI. And what are you gonna do? You're just gonna be way more productive, but that would be really interesting.
1: I think you spend way more time with customers. Like how many PMs, especially when they get really super busy or super senior, like they never spend time with the customer anymore. Yes. That's like a natural thing for many, right? To the point where even in Shopify, like we had to build programs around staying in the front line with customers were like, I'd make sure I jump on support calls once a week or have a conversation with a developer you know, at least once a week and I'd have to schedule these things in and we made, like, you know, we made everyone do it and it's like a cultural push and all these types of things. It's not because we don't like that. Actually, every time we did it, we remind ourselves like, how much that's the point of the job. Yeah. But it's just because there's so much other crap. There's so much overhead to do making 10,000, 1,000, 5,000, 30 people move in the same direction. And you know, so I think it will naturally just be filled with the things that are actually good about the job. You know, ideate with the team, prototype with the team, get it in front of customers, take that feedback and do rinse and repeat, do A. Like that's the, that's the fun part of PA, yeah. it's that cycle. Yeah. Ideate, we, th- we think we figured out a cool thing, show it to customers. If they love it, you get even more energized, and yeah. you, but there's always feedback, and you keep doing it, and then you eventually launch it, and they use it, and you, they love it, and that feeling's amazing. And if you only do that, like it's oh, the best totally. job in the world. Totally. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Moving on to our um, last set of questions around PM career. Yeah. Um, so we work, We have a lot of senior product managers that have an eye to one day be CPOs. Uh, What's the one true north focus they should keep in mind if they want to advance their career in the next five years, taking a more long-term approach?
1: Um, I'd say like like with any very senior type role It's important you have sort of the craft you know, the technical PM skills. I don't mean technical as like an engineering, but just like, you know, the hardcore PM skills like backlog management, scope writing, all these types of things. Like it's important you have that, the, those experiences, but none of that matters in very senior roles, right? Very senior roles is, is relationship building, communication, leadership, being able to motivate people, being able to hire really good people, being able to make high conviction decisions, um, being able to say no a lot, uh, being able to manage the board, manage the CEO. It's like, you know, and for all those things I just mentioned, like, you gotta be a good salesperson. Right? Like every high level job is selling of some, at some level. Hmm. Persuasion, we'll call it that, right? Not selling, persuasion. So if you wanna ready yourself for those things, like you gotta give yourself experiences to, to get good at that. Right, if you've been in a very technically or execution-focused product management path, which has, you know, some elements of, you know, leadership and communication, but not, you know, it's not the majority of what you've done, I think you'll struggle. You'll struggle to even get that job because, you know, the CEO that's going to hire you, they're not going, they're, they're not going to be looking for your technical execution skills or whatever. They're gonna be looking for, like, is this someone that, like, I can have a one-hour, high-fidelity conversation with, and then they can just, like, motivate 300 people to go do this thing, and I never have to talk to them again for six months, (laughs) or whatever, right, like, that level of trust and experience, uh, like, to put that much trust in someone, you really have to believe that, that, you know, they, they have that that right stuff, and it's going to be really well rounded. It's like, can I envision them motivating people? Can I? Do they have good judgment? You know, will will they be able to challenge me on things? Uh, you know, will can they think strategically outside of just like this product box that they've been in? Can they understand that hey, we need to hit our target or else we can't raise money, right? Can they handle? dealing with layoffs and all these types of things like it's it's this I think any senior role like that's the that's a lot of what your actual day-to-day peer level decision-making is and it's far less the actual function you're running because you're the head of that function so no one really around the table is going to challenge you on anything to do with that function they just assume that you're going to do that well and you should uh, but they're going to look at it more of just like black and white outcomes. Like did the product ship and is it good? If, if it's good, okay, that's what we expected you to do. If it's not, then you're not, you're not good, goodbye, right? Like it's like, that's kind of the way it works I think in, in, in really executive roles. And that's why you see like when execs, you know, negotiate their contracts, when they come in, A, their contracts, right? Like there's more C-level hires, is more like contracts than they are like, here's a full-time offer for a job, right? Here's like a three-year contract. And in that contract, people are negotiating their terminations already. They're like, if you fire me, I get two years of all, because it's a very, you know, make or break type of role, right? So realize that that's the reality of it, and then putting yourself in situations to get those experiences so that, A, you can handle that and be good at them, but then also someone could look at you and say that this is someone that's more than just a PM, right, they are actually just like a general like uh, leader and able to run, uh, like manage a large company. and And so, you know, to get those experiences, like sometimes you just gotta leave that career for a second and take a different, like, for me, one of the transformational roles in my crew was becoming that GM mm-hmm. from a product person. Cause now I had like, you know, like 150 engineers reporting into me, not directly, but like indirectly, and yeah. directly and like designers. And I had to show and learn how to motivate those cross-functional teams. And like, that was like, you know, to be clear, I got very lucky to be offered that gig. But like, I think without that gig, I wouldn't even be able to describe to you everything I just did about what an, you know, what executive leadership is, and and what the difference is. So, it's a trick. I think it's a tricky part of anyone's career to position themselves to be that. Um, I think that uh, you sometimes have to find and take some risk, career role wise, to do that. You may need to move to a different company and say like, hey. You know, I want you to take this shot on me um, to be able to have a broader leadership role. Uh, you may want to look into like some GM or more business operating side roles, um, and maybe even start a company. I don't know. There's lots of different ways to tackle it, but I think, but I think like it's it's there's a reason why a lot of executive roles are always brought out from external, mm. right? That's pretty classic in most large companies, I'd say like, I don't know the exact statistics, but my intuition says it's like, a third of executive roles are, are from inside at any given time. And then the other two thirds are hired in from X, Y, Z, because they've already proven they can do it somewhere else. Why is someone gonna take the risk? Right, yeah.
0: So Brendan, for the very last question, these are tough times for a lot of people Many folks have been affected by layoffs. Um, as people are considering their next move, um, what do you think are the most important factors someone should think about when they're picking between different opportunities?
1: Is it a grow? I, yeah. Is it a growing industry or a contracting one? Um, no, no. I think like that's one of the things they need to think about. Yeah. Right, there's a like you do have. To, I always think that everyone owes it to themselves to have a world view, of like where, what parts of the world are going to contract and what parts are going to grow in terms of industry or whatever it may be. So like, you know, if you could land a PM job at OpenAI, you're going to be employed for a while, even if OpenAI doesn't work out in a couple years, right? Because you just know there's so much job creation and demand in that industry. Yeah. Right? So go to where the energy is, go to where it's obviously going to sustain itself for quite a while. And so that's like, you know, one one thing. The opposite being if you if it's for sure going to decline somewhere, that's a scary place to be. Like if you're going to go PM like the digital arm of a print newspaper, that's a scary place to be. From a security standpoint. Yeah. Right. So to me, that actually trumps almost everything. Mm. Being right industry, right market is always like rising tide lifts all boats. That's the key to life, basically. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right. I love that. And so, um, but that aside, I think like from a skills perspective, going back to that same fictitious PM about like, how to think about disruption, about their own job with AI. You know, I don't want to harp too much on AI, but whatever, whatever the skills are for your type of role, like wherever they're moving towards, yeah. you gotta be on the forefront. Like don't be shy about those things, be on the forefront of those things, experiment with them. Um, you know, people want to, what, like have yourself, it'll actually like allow you to distinguish yourself through interview cycles as well, as like someone that understands like the new stack of working, right? Because sometimes people may want to just hire you to literally be an example so that everyone else levels up the way that they Mm. work. Like there's lots of ways to differentiate yourself and create value in the company as a prospective PM, prospective PM, so um, yeah. And like, I don't know about you, but I've never gotten a job where I didn't, like I've never gotten a job like applying somewhere yeah it's like you have to you have to always just work on your network i know it's really painful you know i don't love networking as a thing but it is the way the world works right access to opportunities like they come through trust and respect of people in a network with you and so you know just keep meeting people keep meeting people don't be transactional because I think people can feel and see right through those things, but like meet people with earnest curiosity because A, that's just fun anyway. Yeah. And then find ways to help people and then just believe in karma. Basically, I think like that, that is like, that's a very Viv Valley answer. I think I'm not from the Valley to be clear. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I actually believe that that, that that's the right approach. Yeah.
0: Right. And this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for coming down to our campus here in San Francisco. Uh, it's been great to have you coming from Toronto. I know you're flying out. It's uh, such a treat to have you. This conversation, especially around decision-making and the impact of AI is at the forefront of what product managers have on their mind. And I know I found it very valuable, and I know the PMs that are listening, and going to find it really valuable too. So thank you for your time.
1: Right, thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks. thanks so much.